Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. On today's show, I am joined by an old friend of mine from China, Mark Grievan. Mark is a Chinese-speaking Dutch professor of innovation and strategy at the Institute of Management Development in Lausanne, Switzerland. However, Mark does have a long and storied career in China that predates his recent move to Europe. He is also the author of two books, both published by MIT Sloan, the first in 2017 called Business Ecosystems in China, Alibaba, and competing Baidu, Tencent, Xiaomi, and Le Echo. And his second book, published in 2019, Pioneers, Hidden Champions, Changemakers, and Underdogs, Lessons from China's Innovators, as well as several very good articles that I also recommend you go and find and read. Needless to say, we spend a good amount of time asking Mark about his books and explaining what he means using terms like hidden champions as a class of innovators, or what he means by swarm innovation and rapid centralized decision-making when referring to the six typical ways Chinese entrepreneurs innovate. We close out the conversation discussing a famous Chinese manufacturing giant who has set the bar for surviving the pandemic, deep diving into how the structure of their organization has allowed them to set the high watermark for enterprise resiliency during these difficult times due to COVID-19. Enjoy. When you talk about the, 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 the underdogs, you talk about easily about 150,000. So it's a very, very large group of very small companies, but all developing a really hardcore technology. So when you ask, you know, what strategies or competitive strategies are they following? Yeah. I mean, obviously for the different groups, they're different, but I think they have one, one very important thing in common. They're really good at starting from whatever works for the customer. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally minded brand should ignore, but entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Mark, my old friend, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Really happy to be here. Now, you and I go quite a ways back uh, to my days in Shanghai when you were in Hangzhou, and you are currently now in Lausanne. This is where we're recording you from. Tell us a little bit about how you ended up in China and what you were doing there. Yeah, so so I, you know, my, my story started in, in basically 2004 when I had this idea to do a PhD project on Chinese innovative companies. Um, and I still remember that my, my dean at that time said, you know, this is probably going to be a really short project. So uh, see you back in three weeks. Uh, but, I, but I said, you know, it's probably it's, it's interesting. I, you know, and I had the opportunity to meet Jack Ma, you know, from Alibaba uh, fairly early on. So I was like, you know, something is going on here. So that's why actually I moved to, um, to Hangzhou, uh, so the city of uh, the Westlake. Uh, the mountains, but of course also the city of Alibaba, and that was one of the reasons why I, yeah, you know, I, I came there, studied, did my PhD project, and and got back. What was your first impression of Jack Ma? My first impression was that he was actually 
um, he was actually quite modest in in dealing with questions. So we we had this setting mm-hmm. where it was kind of kind of like a family day, and then I I had an, an opportunity to ask a question, even though obviously I'm not a Chinese family member. Um, and and he was pretty modest in answering. Like I was like, wow, Alibaba is so cool, and all this amazing stuff you're doing. And then he said like, well, you know. Yeah, but actually, we're just doing kind of really small steps. We just do take a lot of steps, but we, you know, do just a lot of small steps. And I, and I thought, hey, that's actually interesting. You know, no, no, nothing of the big disruptive uh, blah, blah, blah around it. So it was pretty cool. You and I go back quite a ways, as I alluded to before. We were introduced by our mutual friend, Baz Overtum, back in, I would say, 2013, 2014, somewhere in there. Now, at the time uh, when we used to meet up and bring our entrepreneurs together, you were a professor of entrepreneurship at the University of Hangzhou, I mean, Zhejiang University, I believe. And I'm curious to know, now after all this time, now that you're you know, in your new role in Lausanne, Switzerland at IMD, what was it like working for a university in China and how would you compare it to your new role now? Right. Yeah. So it's, it's a great question. I mean, um, you know, at, at Zhejiang University in Hangzhou, it's basically, it's, it's a public school. So it's a public university. And I was at the management, uh, in the school of management. Um, and, and, you know, it, ha- it has all the um, let's say, features of, uh, of a bureaucracy that you could imagine when it comes to state-run uh, public uh, institutions. Um, so, so obviously also, you know, the, the, the university has that. Um, I, I think one of, the, one of the things that really uh, made a huge impression for me with, with, you know, being at Zhejiang University was besides the, you know, fair amount of limitations in terms of, you know, what you can do and cannot do, um, the students couldn't care less. They, you know, they were super uh, eager to to do to try out whatever, be really creative, or also really open, you know, to figure out stuff. And I thought that was that was really nice. Uh, but but obviously, you know, I was being a professor there, so you teach courses, you come you come back every week, uh, you know, doing doing classes over and over again. And if I look at where I'm now uh, at IMD here in Switzerland, I mean. It's, it's, a, it's a completely different world. I mean, what we do here is basically, there's no such thing as kind of like a repetitive courses. So most of the work we do is with, is with executive clients, so with, with custom, uh, custom programs, um, executive MBA programs. So we get into a business much more than I, than I did at, at the university in China. Um, and I think another, another really big difference is that, you know, in China, even though it was a you know, a globally accredited business school, you know, with all the all the you know all the fancy things. Um, it was still very much a, a Chinese school with Chinese professors and Chinese students and Chinese companies. And and here at IMD, pretty much, it's it's kind of all over the place. I think there's only two Swiss or three Swiss in the whole faculty here. So uh, oh, wow. that that that's pretty interesting. I alluded to the fact that we used to get together and bring our entrepreneurs together and I would mash my startups together with your entrepreneur students in your school of management. And we used to do some very fun things. We did the marshmallow challenge as a great icebreaker. We would then do the startup improv and mix all the teams up and mix all the entrepreneurs up and we would just have a gas and they would have to do pitches and a lot of them were pretty funny. And we just have a have a really good time. Plus we do some some pitching and some some tutorials around that. I'm interested to know 
because you worked with so many international students studying entrepreneurship in Hangzhou, and they came from all over the place, how would you say they were able to adapt to the environment in China? And in particular, what do you believe the most difficult part was for them? You know, as you said, they come from all over, all over the place. It was, a, it was like an entrepreneurship program, and and the purpose was really, you know, to help, you know, foster entrepreneurial talent, you know. And actually, in in the stuff that we that we did together, when you know, when your startups came together with with my students. It was really also just to get them, you know, get them excited about you know, starting business and so on. And and I think a lot of the, the students that when they came to China, I think they all had this impression like, wow, you know, this is the place where everything is possible. And, you know, like the, the gold, you know, must lie on the street. We just have to pick it up, you know, like it's really, it's going to be easy to do that. And, you know, we as, uh, as foreign, you know, talented young people, of course, we have huge advantage. But actually, that was, uh, I think, one of the biggest uh, mistakes or biases that they had. So in fact, there was very little advantage coming from abroad in, in this in this market context, and they figured out that you know being an entrepreneur in China is is really hard work, um, and and of course uh, lots of opportunities, but also lots and lots of challenges. So so I think that you know the local competition and you know all the um, you know the the local strong companies and entrepreneurs and so on was was something that for for a lot of them was something to adjust to uh, at least in the first phase. I've long held the opinion that it is very hard to start up in a country that you weren't born and raised in or at least very familiar with because you lose the advantage of the intrinsic understanding of how things work, how people think, generalized tastes and preferences amongst consumers. You've made something that's already very, very hard just that much harder. But, th- but that's a good point, actually, yeah? because, you know, in the end, w- whatever you do as an entrepreneur, you know, you need to build something that people want to buy. And and I think for, for a lot of the students in the beginning, it was really hard, you know, to get to, you know, how do I actually know what, what the Chinese customer, what they want? Uh, and, and, and that's much more complicated, you know, as you said, outside of your own comfort zone, but also in an environment where, like, like China is a really interesting place. It's super dynamic and moving and, and everything's moving around. It's also very digital. You know, sort of where the Chinese people are so used to using all kinds of digital technologies. So if you want to get to know them, you need to get to know all of these different ecosystems of platforms and tools. And, and hmm. that, that's not easy, I think. Your book, Pioneers, Hidden Champions, Changemakers and Underdogs, is all about learning from China's innovators. Can you break down those four categories for us? Yeah. So, so what we did with this with this research project, basically, you know, it, it took it, t- it took us ten years to to build this uh, to build this project. Wow. What what we did is we we figured, you know, we we started actually with the big companies, like let's say the Alibabas, you know, the hires and Huawei's of of China, uh, which we now call in the book we call them the pioneers, like so for kind of first generation, really successful, innovative companies. But while we were doing this research, we kept running into new companies. And like and another company we never heard of, and another company we never heard of, and we figured out, hey, these companies are also doing really cool stuff, but they, they seem to be different than than these pioneers. So then, in the end, we you know we sort of collected all of this stuff and all the interviews we did, and and we saw there's sort of kind of four types. So the first type being these pioneers, which are kind of the established incumbent organizations that were maybe sometimes started already in the 1980s, uh, in the case of manufacturing business, or in the early 2000s, uh, in the case of internet business. Um, but really the first wave. And then we, we saw this second group, which, which we call, uh, in a book we call Hidden Champions. Uh, these are companies that were they're really fascinating. They were in all kinds of 
places where you, you, you would not even know where to go, uh, you know, outside of the big cities, outside of Beijing and Shanghai. Um, and they would be very, very good at a very specific technology or application or industrial product that as a consumer you would never meet. But in the business to business, let's say the value chains would actually do really good. And, and these companies, these hidden champions are, you know, typically top three worldwide in terms of in terms of turnover, you know, really big players, but in a very small niche. But you never heard of them. And, and you know, they're hidden. They're hidden because also they kind of want to stay hidden. You know, they're kind of like, you know, don't talk about me. You know, let me do my thing. And, and that's good enough because within my small niche, everybody knows we're good. So that's fine. So, you know, the, the, let, let's forget about all the fuzz. And the, the, so that was the first, uh, the first group, you know, the, 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 the hidden champions that we discovered after the pioneers. I think the second and the third group are younger. So companies like uh, with the second, the, the, the third group, sorry, we call them uh, the technology underdogs. So these are mostly, um, you know, companies founded by overseas returnees. So people with really good uh, degrees, PhDs, um, you know, engineering, science from abroad, usually UK, you know, US, maybe Japan. Um, and they start the businesses in China and usually very much technology driven, so science and technology driven. Uh, but younger, eh? maybe 10 years old or so. And then we have what we call the change makers. So as a fourth group, this in, in short, these are just digital-driven ventures, digital-driven unicorns. So companies that, in terms of specific domain knowledge, they're not, they're, they're, it's, it's interesting, but it's mostly interesting business models. Disruptive new ideas for traditional industries, which is driven completely by digital technology. You know, get lots of users, burn a lot of venture capital money, grow very quick, and then, and then hope, hope that you find a way to make money out of it. <laughs> and, that, and that's an, it's an interesting group because they push traditional businesses and incumbent industries to rethink the way they may make money. You know what? That's really interesting. I think you make some very astute observations in there. What kinds of technologies do these people or companies develop? What are their competitive strategies and what are their key drivers of innovation? Yeah. So in terms of technologies, I mean, we see them, uh, let's say the pioneers and the underdogs and the hidden champions, they're, they're pretty much in almost every industrial vertical that you can imagine, you know, really from specialty chemicals to electronics to, you know, software and artificial intelligence. So, but, but really deep in the technology side, you know, very much R&D driven. And then when you go to the change makers, you will find them basically in, in any type of retail, you know, consumer oriented business. So if you look at these, you know, pretty much if you look at all of them, they cover a lot of uh, manufacturing and service industries and, and, and businesses all over the place, um, which actually makes them scary because, you know, if you think about them, you know, the, the, the big pioneers, maybe there's like, uh, I don't know, 30 to 40, uh, you know, big companies like Hire and Huawei, you know, 30 to 40 different companies. When you think about the, the, the hidden champions, you talk about maybe 200 in the whole of China. But when you talk about the, 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 uh, the underdogs, you talk about easily about 150,000. So it's a very, very large group of very small companies, but all developing a really hardcore technology. So, so, that's, so when you ask, you know, what strategies or competitive strategies are they following? Yeah. I mean, obviously for the different groups, they're different, but I think they have one, one very important thing in common. Um, they're really good at starting from whatever works for the customer. It's extremely customer-driven, customer and market first, 
and then figuring out how to build the technology or how to how to make it a sustainable long-term advantage i would actually say many of them are not even looking for sustainable advantages they're looking for transient temporary advantages that work now and perhaps if they don't work tomorrow we find something else Yes, they have gone from risk-averse to risk-tolerant in a very short span of time, that's for sure. You identify six typical ways Chinese entrepreneurs innovate, including things like swarm innovation and rapid centralized decision-making. First, let us know what all six are, then please give us some greater detail on each. Yeah, so, I mean, the, the purpose or one purpose of the project was to understand whom are we dealing with. So, hence, you know, the categories of different types of companies. And so that was one big purpose. And then, and then we, we thought, well, it's nice to know whom are we dealing with, but it's nicer to know, you know, how are they doing it? So we want to know the how, so the way of they innovate, the way they compete. So the purpose was really also to figure out, is there something Chinese about the way they innovate and compete? And then we came up with something called the Chinese Innovators Way, which is basically in a kind of suggesting, yes, there is. So when we talk about, for instance, swarm innovation, so think about this 150,000 technology underdogs. I mean, a lot of them are not doing unique things. A lot of them are just saying, you know, there is a gap in the market. You know, this company proven, has proven this works. Let's now with the hundreds of us do the same thing, but maybe differentiate a little bit. You know, this is what we call swarm innovation, going after the same opportunity collectively, and then by super heavy competition, maybe one or two or three come out. You know, we've seen this with uh, the shared bikes, which in the end that became kind of a, uh, kind of a bit, bit, bit of a fuzz or with the, with the taxi hailing or all kinds of businesses we've seen this happening. So swarm innovation. Um, but we, we have a couple of other ones like the centralized decision-making. Uh, I think in, 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 um, in Western companies like Amazon, it would be called uh, single threaded leadership. So where basically, you know, there's super clear leadership directives you know, to executives and leaders in the company. And they say, you know, you have one week to do this one task and you have so many resources. So, you know, very specific on what it is. And Chinese companies are really good at that. You know? And then, you know, it's getting really to get execution, you know, get everything done as quick as possible. Um, so this is another one of those, uh, of those different ways. Um, if I would need to choose another one, which I think is particular or interesting, is um, you know Chinese companies are really good at tinkering. Hmm. Um, they're, they're really good at you know figuring things out on the way, mm-hmm. uh, kind of sort of kind of glorified exper- experimentation with a kind of an effectual learning loop in it. I think it's something they're they're pretty good at. Um, so so these are a couple of those I would say ways that Chinese mm-hmm. companies innovate, and probably none of them are unique as such independently. But, you know, put all of them together, I think they, they give kind of a feeling of like, hey, this is something that, you know, collectively combined, not a lot of other companies in the world do like this. I believe it was Reid Hoffman who said, being an entrepreneur and building a startup is like putting the parts to a plane in a backpack, jumping off a cliff and figuring out how to build the plane on the way down. Now, I personally witnessed a massive shift in the ability of Chinese individuals to be innovative and risk tolerant after about 2010, meaning that the change was likely underway at least a few years before that. Now, five years ago or so, there was an article that came out that said Peking University has surpassed MIT as the number one engineering school in the world. And I brought this up to a technically elite friend of mine in Beijing who attended Peking University, and he opined that 
they did produce the greatest quantity of the greatest quality of engineers that knew how to use technology created by MIT grads, inferring that their ingenuity and creativeness was lacking. Would you agree with that opinion at any point? And if not, was it ever the case? And when did it change? Yeah, so I, I think the thing with China is that it's everything is always moving, you know. So, so and if you say 2015, for me, that's like two, two, two eons ago, decades, right? So it's like, yeah. It's like, it's like crazy long time ago. Um, so, so things are always moving. So I think that we've seen kind of you know, different waves of um, when it comes to creativity and innovativeness with with Chinese uh, companies and Chinese people in general. So, so first of all, I mean, it's impossible to generalize about sort of creativity over the Chinese entrepreneur or, or of Chinese engineers um, as such. I, I think what, what, what we have seen is, you know, if you distinguish the group that came back from the, from the US or the UK or from Europe and started businesses, many of those engineers are, you know, as, as creative, innovative, open-minded as, as, as you can get. Sure. So they're, they're, that's and that's a fairly large group. Eh? You talk about like yeah. eight hundred thousand people per per year or so. It's a fairly large group uh, in two thousand fifteen. And I think uh, you know what comes out of the Chinese university system today. Let's say uh, Peking University or Zhejiang University or or Tsinghua, you know, the top schools. I think when it comes to engineering talent, I mean, I think it's absolutely amongst the you know the world top class engineers yeah and and, and scientists i mean i think today um it is more difficult to get into for instance Tsinghua or, or or peking university than it is to get into mit and harvard i mean it's, it's very very competitive now does that mean that everybody at at these at these universities are very creative necessarily as creative as as people in mit and stanford well well, well probably not um, because maybe that's not necessarily what the market needs. And so, so, I mean, there's always a connection between you know, what the market wants and what everybody's doing and then what the universities are, are spawning up. So I, I think that, um, you know, there is an equal percentage of, you know, really creative and intelligent people and, and you know, innovative and so on. Uh, but you would also find people that are just really good at a certain technology, but might not be the ones that come up with the fundamental you know, the new paradigm shift or so. Uh, although in the last years, in certain areas that is changing, um, areas like, like, you know, like software engineering, like artificial intelligence, uh, also in areas like, like you know, um, special, special materials, so material sciences, mm-hmm. uh, bio, biotechnology, um, you know, medical fields or things like the combination of the traditional medicine and Western medicine. I mean, you find in, in specific areas, really breakthrough technologies like super creative new uh things coming out of chinese universities and yeah so it's that is changing you know you're right it it all has changed and you know potentially bad on me for my own lag in catching up and understanding how innovative they are i mean they went through so many cultural shifts and so many ups and downs you know the mao zedong eras and then coming out of that and trying to build back up uh safety first was the priority for a lot of the grandparents of our now young generation of innovators in china so uh potentially i'm a little bit behind the times and uh, that is a question better suited for five years ago no, no. I mean, I think I think it's still it's still a valid question, you know, because mm-hmm. you know this is something that also a lot of people have in mind, right? I, I mean, the reality is not everybody that goes yeah. to Peking University is going to be a creative genius. I mean, I mean, in fact, a lot of the companies that we've worked with, 
uh, are not necessarily, you know, as well-educated university graduates. A lot of them, you know, really innovative companies are founded by people that have no, no particularly, you know, visible elite education. So, so I think we find the creativity in all kinds of corners, not necessarily only in the top schools. Yeah, you're right. When you're allowed to fail and you almost can get comfortable with failing, then amazing things can happen. Can you give us some examples of emerging innovators like Royal and discuss why they pose real threats to incumbents, especially Western incumbents, often in those unexpected places or industries? Yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, again, if you would distinguish the different players, you get the different answer. But you know, if we look at companies like like Royal, you know, the companies like uh, Hick Vision, you know, they do smart security cameras or or lens technology. They make um, glass for for touchscreen uh, yeah. applications. You know, they have like a fifty percent global market share on touchscreen glass. Wow. Um, you know, th- those companies are. It's a bit like. Um, you know, they're there, we would not really notice them because they're not in the news, um, but they play a very crucial role in, in this global value chain. So basically, if a company like Hick Vision or, 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 or Lens Technology, if they would sort of suddenly drop out, then we would not have phones to buy. Yeah. You know, so, so they play a very important role there, and I think already for, for a longer time. And I think a lot of companies don't realize that their uh, dependency in the value chain is already much deeper into Chinese and Chinese innovators than, than perhaps what, what was thought. Now, companies like Royal um, or another company we really like is a, is a Malong, uh, Malong technology. They do um, um, artificial intelligence for retail applications. So they do have a very nice image recognition technology that you can use on, on fibers, you know, like on, on you know, cloth. Mm-hmm. You can actually use in e-commerce applications. Uh, you know, to say this is what type of cloth exactly, you know, the percentage of wool and all this kind of thing. So pretty cool. Um, uh, from Shenzhen, a company in the south of, of China. These companies are, are, you know, not necessarily a threat directly to large incumbents, you know, like the big, the big, big companies from the US and Europe. Um, but they could sort of come sort of at, at the back in the value chain, start to play a role and then slowly kind of move up and become, you know, crucial technology providers and then kind of become like hidden champions. So if you look at these 200 hidden champions today, without which a lot of global value chains would not be able to exist in terms of building technology solutions. Now then you have these 150,000 small companies that are slowly moving up to become hidden champions. So I think that's the real, let's say the threat. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, it's also the opportunity, right? Because mm-hmm. if you are a clever executive in a, in a big company, you say, you know, those are the companies that you would like to work with, to invest with, to partner with, or, 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 or even to buy. Um, so, so, and, and that's exactly what a lot of the large pioneering Chinese innovators like Huawei and Alibaba are doing. So, so there's, there's kind of an overlap between those, between those groups. In your article titled, How Autonomy Creates Resilience in the Face of Crisis, published by MIT Sloan, who has also published your other works, thank you to them, you write about one Chinese manufacturing giant that quickly rebounded from the COVID-19 pandemic, largely due to its org structure. So given COVID-19 has exposed the fragility of global supply chains due to dependencies that span vast geographic distances, what can we learn from companies like Hire, who do things a little differently, affording them the resiliency so many other companies would love to have right now 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing is that organizational design is kind of, it's kind of boring, right? I mean, if you look at what business school teach about it, you know, the matrix structure and business units and all this kind of stuff. It wasn't my favorite course in business school for sure. I'll give you that. No. So, so the thing is that what higher kind of shows, so this is yeah, the Chinese white goods uh, manufacturer, actually the largest in the world, uh, they acquired GE appliances and so on. They do really yeah. well. I, what they what they they made you know us rethink what is what is the purpose and, and of organizational design and why it matters because basically what they're doing and what they're trying so they would never admit themselves that they succeeded this is a feature of the company and they say there's no such thing as an established enterprise even if we're number one in the world we're not established you know we're not successful so and, and what they do is they have been experimenting with how can we give our frontline employees and and, and workers as much autonomy as possible to to respond quickly to the market. Mm. So they have been experimenting since the 90s. And they said, you know, maybe we should get rid of middle management. And they did. Maybe we should get rid of all the, you know, resource functions in between, you know, accounting and, and, and HR and all these things, you know. Let's get rid of all the up and down reporting as much as we can. And we try to build it as kind of a platform of small companies. Now, during the crisis, this turned out to be you know, really powerful for two reasons. Because on the one hand, if you have more autonomy at the frontline teams, you know, the, comp- the, the people and the teams that really work with the customers, with the factories, you know, making the products and delivering them, if you give them autonomy, they can decide that for their particular product or for their particular part of the production, oh uh, yeah, we now quickly need this piece or that component. Let's go to this partner locally, source it there next week and we have it without going all up the chain, go to corporate headquarters, can we get approval, blah, blah, blah. So what it actually did is that all these frontline small businesses, they had enough autonomy to make you know, quick decisions on, you know, for instance, sourcing their products and raw materials to be able to build the products they want to build. So, so actually in this crisis, it kind of shows that you know, having the autonomy, you know, giving that kind of autonomy away to the local frontline kind of um, the teams, this actually helps you to deal with this kind of crisis much more responsibly. Uh, obviously, it also allows the frontline employees to work and find new growth opportunities quicker because they're on the front line and they can make the decision. They can say, you know, let's spend this money on doing a little bit R&D or let's partner with that company. So, so I think that shows in, in this kind of really turbulent times that there's an advantage of you know, sort of tuning down the organizational structure to the bare minimum. So there's still kind of kind of a synergy of the brand and everything, but having autonomously functioning units and teams doing, you know, doing what they do best at the front line. Usually I end the show by asking our guests for their best piece of advice to brands who want to enter China. But today I think I'm going to switch it up based on what you were just talking about. What is your best piece of advice to companies who need to change their organization, their supply chain, their strategies, their customer segments, etc.? What would you suggest that they do to not only survive the pandemic, but to gain some resiliency, gain some capacity to be successful coming out of the pandemic, which we all hope happens sooner than later? Yeah, so I, I think that's, that's a great point. I think building resilience, that is like in the example of hire, I think that's fantastic. But I think what's even better is if we're not only resilient, which means coming back to how it was before and maintaining that situation, but actually be able to thrive. So get better, get better of the, out of this crisis. And I think 
that that the one thing that I would recommend um, also our listeners is think really start thinking in terms of of ecosystems. Stop thinking in doing things yourself alone. This is the moment really to leverage all these partners and suppliers and and you know customers and whatever is out there to figure out how together you can be more quick and more relevant in the market, especially now when the market is so uncertain and so dynamic. And I think there's a real um, opportunity now to, you know, not necessarily reorganize yourself because that's a very painful process. But to start to say like, how can we get all of the resources out there, mobilize them, you know, and, and you know, make the phone calls to those partners, you know, on Monday morning. You know, tell them, you know, we're open for business. You know, tell them the stuff. Wait, hey, this is the stuff we have. What do you have? Let's let's figure out what can we do together. And I think that that's you know really my you know biggest piece of advice now: build an an ecosystem advantage, and 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 now is the best time to do that. Mark, my old friend, thank you for coming on my show. Thank you for being such a brilliant guest. I so hope that you enjoy your time now in Lausanne, Switzerland, or at least half the time that you do get to spend there. And I do wish you the best and wish you all the safety and health and happiness for you and all your loved ones. Thanks again. Thank you very much for having me and, and you know, keep in touch with, uh, with everyone. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jing.